0: All
1: right, everybody. We're going to get started. If you can find your seats, we'll uh, we we'll kind of jump into our material today. So this is uh, teach us your word. This is the final week. We've been uh, this is week nine. Um, so we've been at this a little while, looking at how to um, read the Bible, study the Bible, apply the Bible. Um, We've been looking at a, a Bible study method that that goes by this acronym, CAPTOR, which stands for context, analysis, problems, themes, obligations, and then finally, reflection. And so, um, reflection is, is what we're going to be looking at this week. Um, we're going to be talking about reflecting on what we've studied. You know, we've learned how to, to study the Bible in context, understand what's going on. We've even looked at how to... Um, make application of what we're reading and studying, and so now we're going to talk about reflecting on all of that, um, or meditating on what we've learned. And, and we talked about meditation um, at the very beginning, and we want to come back to it now because it's such an important um, topic. So let me, pray, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll look at um, what it means to meditate on God's Word. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for your help as we, um, as we talk about reflecting on your word, meditating on your word. Would you give us insight and understanding? Would you help us to become, continue to become uh, good students of your word? Not simply so that we would have lots of information, but so that you, uh, we would be transformed by your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, a question to begin our time. Why meditate on Scripture? Um, let me give you a simple answer. Because the, the purpose of studying our Bibles, so the purpose of everything we've, we've covered so far, um, isn't merely to learn new information. Now, we, we do want to learn information. That's why we've, ta- that's why we've spent you know, uh, nine weeks now um, talking about studying the Bible. But the, the goal isn't simply to get new information, but to be transformed by God's Word, to be formed by God's Word. You, um, maybe you remember um, James's warning in the, the opening of his letter where he warns about um, being not merely hearers of the Word, people who kind of have the Word of God go in one ear and, and out the other, but also doers. And so if our reading and study of God's Word isn't changing um, who we are and and how we live, um, then perhaps we are just filling our minds with information. Perhaps it is just sort of like any other material we would read or study. Now, information is important. Okay, so don't hear me saying, you know, information doesn't matter, um, don't study. And I'm not saying that. Study is important. But simply knowing what the text says isn't the goal. That's a, it's a step. Um, knowing what it says is an is a important step. But again, we want to be formed and transformed by God's Word into people who embody His kingdom. And so meditation is an important uh, part of that process. So Colossians, um, think of Colossians three sixteen, where the beginning of the verse where Paul says, "Let the word of God dwell in you richly." Now he's he's speaking to the whole church, not just individuals. Um, you know, the the study of God's word, the contemplation of God's word, ought to be a big part of our gatherings together as the church, but it applies individually as well. And and the idea of the word of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ dwelling in us, um, points to more than mere intellectual assent. Um, uh, Doug Moo in his commentary on Colossians said that it points to a, a deep and penetrating contemplation of Scripture, um, a, a meditation on Scripture, reflection on Scripture that has the power to transform us. And So that's the idea. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. And that, that's part of what we're talking about when we consider reflecting on God's Word or um, meditating on God's Word. Um, meditation serves as a bridge between all the study we've done and, and the personal application and, and formation that the Word of God brings. So Tim Keller says this about meditation. He says, Meditation is taking the truth down into our hearts until it catches fire there and begins to melt and shape our reactions to God, ourselves, and the world, so you can see, this is about more than simply knowing. You know, a few weeks back, we looked at um, David and Goliath, and we learned some things about the Philistines and Philistine culture and uh, that kind of thing. All important info that helps us get uh, a better perspective on what's going on, what was going on there in First Samuel 17. But but the goal isn't to simply be you know spout off details about. Uh, Goliath's armor. <laughs> it's like, what's the bigger picture here? What is this teaching me about God? What is this teaching me about the life of faith? What is this teaching me about, you know, any number of things, and, and how is that supposed to change my life? So meditation is, is part of the process of, of getting there. So um, what is biblical meditation? Um, you know, in our cultural context, the word meditation might bring up, you know, ideas, ideas, um, practices rooted in in Eastern religions and spirituality, but biblical meditation is a, a quite different uh, thing altogether, um, not about emptying the mind or achieving a state of calm and relaxation. Um, biblical meditation involves um, lots of thinking and, and reflecting deeply on God's Word. And kind of the, the classic passage on this is Psalm 1, as I'm sure most of you know, um, the first three verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So that, that... Line there um, on his law he meditates day and night. Now that term, um, that Hebrew word that's translated meditates, it means to reflect deeply on a on a subject, reflecting deeply on on some topic. The mind is very active, not not passive. Um, and in, in here in, in Psalm 1, the object of meditation is God's law, His Torah, instruction, not just the commands, but His Word as instruction to His people. Um, I just have this little graphic, different ways that word is translated in the Old Testament. Um, it's not necessarily a silent activity. Now, you know, when we think of meditating on God's Word, we're probably um, envisioning just a, a quiet place and a, and a quiet place practice. Now, finding a quiet place is good, but we're not necessarily silent as we meditate on God's word. Um, this, this term that's translated meditates, it was, it was also used for the, the low sound, like the, a low sound, like the cooing of a dove. It's used for the sound that a lion makes as he's growling over his prey and tearing his prey apart. Um, it can have the sense of talking to yourself, muttering, um, asking questions, and you see the psalmist do that in Psalm 42, verse five. You know, as the psalmist um, speaks to himself, "Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me?" He's he's meditating in this case on his own. Um, Inner experience: What's going on? Why he's um, feeling low? So meditation um, is 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 both uh, art and science. And I wanna um, I wanna kind of lodge this image in your mind: meditating like a dog. And this comes from uh, Eugene Peterson, um, where he he talks about the importance of meditation, and he says meditating on God's Word is sort of like a dog gnawing on a bone. And so I just I want to lodge this uh, image in your mind so when you think of meditating on God's Word, you can picture maybe your pet dog at home enjoying a bone. I'm going to read you something uh, Eugene Peterson says about this. It's a little lengthy, but it is very good. So just um, stay with me here. But he, he says, Years ago I owned a dog, who had a fondness for large bones. Fortunately for him, we lived in the forested foothills of Montana. In his forest rambles, he often came across a carcass of a white-tailed deer that had been brought down by the coyotes. Later, he would show up on our stone lakeside patio carrying or dragging his trophy, usually a shank or a rib. He was a small dog, and the bone was often nearly as large as he was. Um, he gnawed the bones turned it over and around, licked it, worried it. Sometimes we could hear a low rumble or growl, what in a cat would be a purr. He was obviously enjoying himself and in no hurry. After a leisurely couple of hours, he would bury it and return the next day to take it up again. An average bone lasted about a week. And, and here's where he starts to connect this to meditation. Meditation. He says, I always took delight in my dog's delight, his playful seriousness, his childlike spontaneities, now totally absorbed in the one thing needful. But imagine my further delight in coming upon a phrase one day while reading Isaiah, in which I found the poet-prophet observing something similar to what I enjoyed so much in my dog, except that his animal was a lion instead of a dog. And here he quotes Isaiah 31. As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey... Um, growls is the word that caught my attention and brought me that little pop of delight. What my dog did over his precious bone, making those low, throaty rumbles of pleasure as he gnawed, enjoyed, and savored his prize, Isaiah's lion did to his prey. The nugget of my delight was noticing that the Hebrew word here translated as growl, um, I was noticing the Hebrew word here translated as growl, um, but usually translated as meditate in Psalm 1, um, describing the blessed man or woman whose delight is in the law of the Lord, Um, but Isaiah uses this word to refer to a lion growling over his prey the way my dog worried a bone. Haggah, the Hebrew word, is a word that our Hebrew ancestors used frequently for reading the kind of writing that deals with our souls. But meditate is far too tame a word for what is being signified. When Isaiah's lion and my dog meditated, they chewed and swallowed using teeth and tongue, stomach and intestines. Isaiah's lion meditating his goat, if that's what it was. My dog meditating his bone. There is a certain kind of writing that invites this kind of reading. Soft purrs and low growls as we taste and savor anticipate and take in the sweet and spicy mouth-watering and soul-energizing morsel words, um, quoting Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We're almost done. I am interested in cultivating this kind of reading, the only kind of reading that is congruent congruent with, that, uh, with what is written in our Holy Scriptures, but also with all writing that is, that is indeed um, intended to change our lives and not just stuff some information into the cells of our brain. All serious and good writing anticipates precisely this kind of reading, ruminative and leisurely, in contrast to wolfing down information. So meditating on god 's word is, is like what your your pet dog does, just you know, um, totally absorbed in, in what he 's doing he or she is doing, um, uh, just extracting every bit of delight, tasty, delight. Um, he can from the bone, and in, in our case, meditating on God's word. Well, how do we do that? How do we meditate on God's word? And so I want to I want to take you through a couple just practical ways to do this. Uh, the first we we've already talked about. I'm just going to remind you of it. But um, we used an acronym um, TPCA, and and before I, I get into that. Let me just say one thing um, about meditating on God's Word. It can be difficult to make the time for this, right? It's it's a struggle, you know, to make time for reading God's Word. Um and it can be you, you might be thinking, how am I going to add this to the mix as well? Um let me just make a suggestion. If you if you normally spend, you know, say ten minutes, fifteen minutes maybe, um, reading God's Word, um, rather than spending the entire time reading. Maybe now spend five minutes reading and five minutes meditating. Or, you know, you can divide that up however you want. But devote some of that time to actually slowing down and and reflecting on what you've read and trying to um, derive some benefit from what you've read. Instead of just, you know, I I sped read through whatever um, whatever I was supposed to read today and now I'm off to these other activities, and I don't even remember what I read. Um, Meditation helps you absorb what you read. So one method, um, which we talked about um, a while back, TPCA, which stands for Teach, Praise, Confess, Ask. These are just simple questions as you read God's Word that you can ask um, to derive some benefit. The first, teach. What does this passage teach me? Um, what does it teach me about God, who He is, what He does? What does it teach me about myself, who I am as a person created in His image, as a person who's um, broken by the fall and being uh, restored in Jesus Christ? What does this teach me about the world, etc, that there's a lot that could be um, discovered there. So teach, praise. How can I praise God in light of this passage? It's often a very helpful thing to observe in, in whatever portion of God's Word you're, you're reading and studying. Just what does this show me about God and how can I turn that into praise? Um, what, can I, what sins should I confess in light of this passage? Sometimes a portion of Scripture we're looking at exposes you know, um, idols of our hearts, um, disordered desires, whatever the case may be, Um, so what can I confess? And then the A, um, what should I ask God for in light of this passage? So maybe maybe it's a passage exhorting the readers to be certain kinds of people, Um, and we might ask God, you know, cultivate this kind of character, this kind of virtue within me, or or maybe, you know, whatever it might be, there might be something for you to ask God for in light of the passage. Now, we talked about that method um, early on, so I'm, I'm going to move on to a, another method, um, which is, is fairly simple, but actually I find uh, yields quite a bit of benefit, and that's just emphasizing different words in the passage. Now, you really don't want to do this with a whole paragraph, because um, it's going to take you a long time, but... You could take maybe a, a verse that really stood out to you in your reading, and and you just you read it with emphasizing different words in the verse that help you just. Um, in part, it slows you down, so you're actually thinking about what you're reading. But it, it can yield some insights. And I just want to do this with you um, with Galatians two twenty, just the first part of the verse. But you, you know you're familiar with this verse probably. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, you know, this is one of those verses I was taught to, I memorized it, you know, early on as a Christian. I'm sure many of you were taught to do the same. Um, just the, the first sentence in this verse is, is pretty significant. Um, I have been crucified with Christ. And what would it look like just to emphasize different words i'm going to do this with the first sentence, and then i'm going to ask you to weigh in with the next part of the verse, but you know we might first just emphasize that that first word: "I have been crucified with Christ." Um, obviously, this is the apostle Paul speaking of himself, but speaking of himself as a believer, something that's true of of every believer and um you know there's this immediately. What stands out to me is, oh, this is there's a personal aspect to what Paul's talking about here. This isn't just a an abstract statement about um, Christians or or God or whatever. It's I. This is something that's happened to me as a believer. And as I go on to the next phrase, I have been crucified with Christ. Um, okay, something's happened to me, and notice it happened in the past. I have been crucified with Christ. And just to get geeky for a moment, uh, the verb there is, is passive, meaning I didn't do this to myself. Um, this Somebody did this to me, which is, you know, I've, it's obvious from reading that, but it, it's interesting to consider that as I slow down, that, that I am not the cause of this. Someone... Someone did this to me, obviously, we know whom. Um, but then we move on to the the next um, or we just slow down and look at that word crucified. I have been crucified with christ now we 're very familiar with this verse, so it might not um, might not strike us um, as a surprising thing any longer. but you know here I am, a living, breathing person and and paul 's teaching me to say i 've been crucified i 've been executed um, in a in a very horrible um, fashion um, i've been crucified well you know this would maybe prompt you to ask, well, how have I been crucified what is that what does that mean and we, we don 't have time to to unpack that here, but you can see how emph- you know just emphasizing that word i 've been crucified what is what is Paul getting at here and then the, the last um, phrase, I've been crucified with Christ. So, you know, at the beginning of the verse, we saw there's a personal aspect to this. I have been crucified. But it's not me. It's not individualistic. It's I've been crucified with Christ um, because I'm in Christ, united to Christ, and it seems like paul 's saying there 's a, a sense in which I should think of myself as a believer um, as there with Jesus at the crucifixion, not merely as a spectator but as one who is co crucified with christ um, so there's just there 's a lot just by slowing down and, and emphasizing the different words and phrases that can um, spur imagination that can um, draw attention to um, particular truths in the verse that you might skip over if you 're just kind of you know doing your speed reading thing so I want to have you do this uh, with the next part of the verse, um, not the whole thing because it 's kind of long, but it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me um, where 's jared there 's jared we 're going to need the mic here um, you know this this first part. No longer I who live. If we were to slow down and emphasize that, what are just some, some ideas, thoughts that come to mind as you think about this verse? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. And they don't have to be the right answers. Just um.
0: It says no longer so previously I was living in some fashion and that's now ch- my it's now changed and it's emphasized on I who live so it's focusing on me yeah which kind of will contrast later I think.
1: yeah so the you know the emphasis on time you know there was a past and, and now that something's different that's that's good Jacob
0: Um, Immediately what comes to my mind is, it's like, um, it's no longer I who live as part of this world, but now that I'm in Christ, I'm part of that and I'm saved and now apart from
1: this world. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which brings up, there's a contrast, right? I no longer live, but Christ, it's, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So again, um, and and a lot of these ideas will overlap. But what comes to mind? Identity has changed. Change in identity. Yeah, yeah. Maybe one other before I move on to the final final phrase, Hank. We can't just live any old way we please. We are responsible to live with the knowledge that Christ lives in us. Yeah, so that's an interesting aspect of this. It's no longer I who live for myself. Um, Christ lives um, this last phrase, in me, which is you know, you could spend your whole time of reading and meditating on God's word just on this. What does it mean for Christ to live in me? What What is that dynamic? What is that what are the implications of that? Um, so there's a there's a lot that you can do, and I just want to throw that method out there to you of emphasizing different words as a way to meditate on on God's word. And typically, you're going to want to do this with just a single verse, because um, unless you have lots of time, then you can do you can do much more. But there's a lot of benefit to be derived just from slowing down and thinking about the different phrases. Now. Another method I want to I want to spend some time the rest of our time on is what I'll what I'll call asking the big story questions. And I have, you know, big story in quotes there. What I'm referring to is is God's big story. So we're we're reading the Bible, we're studying the Bible with a particular passage or verse that we're looking at we want to connect what we're reading and studying to the, the big story of the Bible, the story of what God is doing in Christ by his spirit to redeem and renew his world. And so, um, you know, we always, you know, there's, there's this dance I've talked about, the forest and the trees. We want to see big picture. We also want to dive down into the details. We want to examine the trees. That's kind of what Bible study is like. You're you're looking at the details. But then you need to come back up and see the whole forest because as amazing as a single tree is, um, to see it in the context of maybe a a whole grove or forest um, sheds some some light on on, uh, further significance. And it's like that. Any verse we look at, in the Bible, connecting it to the big story of what God is doing in Christ um, situates it and helps us to understand its um, its significance. And so, there's two questions you could ask here. There's more than two, but we're just going to do two. Two questions you could ask to connect any text to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first has to do with the human condition. And so, you, you're looking at a text. You want to meditate on a text. Um, you, you want to ask what aspect of the human condition does this passage or verse reveal? In other words, um, how does the passage show my need for God's provision and grace? So, so we're kind of stepping back a little bit from the details and starting to connect it to um, the the theme that runs throughout Scripture of of God, His grace in Jesus Christ, and. Uh, I should just say, I didn't make this up, um, so I'm not going to take credit for it. This is based on things that Brian Chappell's written, Jonathan Pennington, Zach Eswine, and others. Um, But the human condition, um, every passage is going to address in some way or fashion an, an aspect of what it means for us to be human beings in this world. And... Another way to phrase it is what condition do I share with the people to whom or for whom this was written? Um, it may be very explicitly stated in the text. It might be if it's a narrative, you might have to do a bit of your narrative analysis that we learned earlier and look at different characters and see you know, who, which character in this, this story, maybe it's a gospel story, which characters in this story um, kind of exemplify um, uh, the the attitude and mindset of a believer. Which ones exemplify kind of the attitude mindset of an unbeliever, or or so forth. But um, the Bible is not just some abstract systematic theology textbook, and it, it speaks to human need and brokenness, and and we can get a better understanding of how a passage applies and what impact it should have as we look for what does it tell us about the human condition. And let me give you um, four, they're in your handout, four just varieties of four categories for the human condition. We could multiply these categories, but um, these come from Zach S. Wine. I I think they're helpful. Um, Four aspects of the human condition. We're fallen, finite, fragile, faltering. Um, so sometimes a passage is going to speak very directly about our fallen condition, our sinfulness. Um, much of the Bible is is addressing this, our our inner tendency toward uh, temptation and sin. It might manifest itself. Our fallen condition, or or any human's fallen condition, might manifest itself in spiritual hardness, spiritual blindness. Um, S. Wine talks about fleshly fruit, you know, the, the outworking of, of warring desires in, in terms of character, sinful character, sinful behavior. So you might look for what does this passage show me about fallen condition? But fallenness or sinfulness is not the only thing to say about the human condition. There's also, um, we're finite. And here we're talking about creaturely limitations. So not, not sinful um, aspects of who we are, but just what it means. We're not God. We are, we are finite creatures created by the Creator. And so, um, you know, we have limited knowledge. And sometimes a passage is going to be addressing that reality. We have limited knowledge, limited understanding, uh, limited emotional capacity, um, f- limited physical ability, um, all kinds of things. So sometimes... Scripture's not highlighting necessarily our sinfulness, but just our, our creatureliness. Um, so that's another category. But also, um, the human conditions marked by fragility. We're, we're, we're in a fragile condition. And this is um, getting at the effects of living in a broken world. So there's our own personal sinfulness, there's our creaturely limitations. But then there's also ways in which we've been uh, broken and damaged simply by the fact of being born into and living in a world that's broken and damaged. So people sin against us that causes damage. Um, maybe we were born with certain physical uh, deformities or limitations that others don't share. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of ways, uh, psychological and emotional vulnerabilities, that That are a part of us, not because we've done something to cause them, but just simply by the the fact that we are um, living in this this broken world with broken minds and bodies. So the fragile condition. Sometimes scripture is addressing that. And then the final one, uh, faltering. Um, Often we experience tension in our lives as as Christian believers. Right? We know what God wants. We know what He commands and yet we find ourselves kind of wavering between um, what the truth is and demands of us and, and what we want to do or what we're being drawn towards. So sometimes Scripture is addressing our, our tendency to falter and waver. So the human condition is a, is a great way, as you look at a passage and you want to meditate on what is this, what's the big picture here? Um, you want to ask, well, what does it show me? about myself as a human being in this world. What, what aspect of the human condition is it getting at? Um, but you don't want to stop there. You know, Depending on what, which aspect of the human condition the passage is focusing on, that could leave you pretty, um, pretty discouraged, right? <laughs> if you just stop with um, what's wrong with us. Um, that's why we, we want to move on to also consider the redemptive solution. So you've identified some aspect of the human condition, and then you want to follow that up with a question, how does God and Christ and the gospel provide a redemptive solution to this condition? So again, we're trying to connect a specific passage or verse to the big story, what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ to redeem and renew his world, including his people. Um, and there's a variety of ways you can identify the redemptive solution in a passage. And um, I'm, I'm going to go over this real quick, and then we're going to practice this. So um, don't worry, you'll get some, some uh, idea of what it looks like in practice. But varieties of, of ways to identify a redemptive solution. Um, I have there in your notes uh, five Ps, uh, promises, provision, perspective, people, presence, let me just go over this real quickly. Sometimes, you know, there's a, a, a promise. Um, and, and you can think of many of the promises that you you value and, and meditate on um, often in Scripture. Um, sometimes God's redemptive solution comes in terms of provision. Um, it could be spiritual provision, gifts, spiritual gifts, spiritual blessings that he gives to his people. It could be, in the passage, some kind of material provision, physical provision, that god 's redemptive solution in a particular passage might come in the form of a perspective, so I, I, something that immediately comes to my mind is the way scripture teaches us to think about suffering and the different aspects of it. Um, you know some Some passages say, well, trials are not signs of God. Um, that God's rejected you. They're they're his fatherly uh, discipline or it's a refining work or or so forth. Um, He's working for our good. So sometimes scripture is teaching us how to view life in this world in a different way. Um, Sometimes God's redemptive solution comes in the form of people. Um, He places us in a community of believers, people that are able to um, give us encouragement, support, and help. The last P there is uh, presence, just God gives us Himself. And so often, this is what we see in Scripture. The Father sends the Son to redeem us, um, the Son promises to be with us, um, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So, God's redemptive solution might not necessarily be, you know, instruction or, or some kind of piece of wisdom that'll fix a situation. It's just here, here's myself. I'm with you, I'm for you. Um, you're mine. Um, so the five P's, another, another angle is looking for gospel glimpses, gospel glimpses. Um, how does the, we want to ask ourselves, how does this passage uniquely connect to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? And so you want to look for ways that the text um, highlights some aspect of who Jesus is and his, his saving work or, or points to some aspect of who he is and his saving work. Um, uh, Julius Kim, who used to teach um, the, the preaching courses at Westminster here in town, um, he, he divides this up into a couple different categories I have there in your notes. Um, we can look for the ways in which Christ is our penalty payer. We can look for the ways in which he's paid the penalty for our sins um, through his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, Um, looking looking for ways in which he's the covenant keeper. In other words, his life of perfect obedience to the Father, which he lived in our place on our behalf, and his righteousness that is now credited to us. Um, How does this text show me that Christ is the power provider? In other words, his grace defeats the power of sin. Um, and then obedience motivator. How does, how does the grace of God in this passage um, motivate my holiness, motivate my obedience? How does it fuel my love for God? And I, I would add another category. Um, I didn't know what to call it, so I just called it this. Sympathy provider. You think of the incarnate Son. Jesus comes in solidarity with us, and he is a sympathetic and faithful high priest who, who knows us, gets us. Um, he's experienced you know, the trials that we experience, the temptations we experience, and so Hebrews 4 says he's able to help us because of that. Um, now, that's a lot, and let's try to um, practice this for a moment. Um, on page 4 of your handout, the back page, I've got a passage there for us, um, Luke 7, 1 through 10. And I, I want to practice this, um, this aspect of meditating on God's Word, the asking about the human condition and, and the redemptive solution that's revealed in the passage. And I should say this, there is no one right answer when you're, when you're looking for these things. You could probably identify five different ways you know, in any given passage, five different ways it speaks about the human condition, you know, three, four, five different ways in which it points to God's redemptive solution. The, the goal here isn't to come up with the one answer that, that will be the one answer for all time. It's, you know, just looking at the, the breadth and depth of the passage. So as we look at Luke 7, um, you know, we want to ask, what aspects of the human condition do we see and what redemptive solution Um, is is shown to us. You know, what glimpses of the gospel do we get? Let me read the passage for us, and then um, then I'm going to make you do some work and answer these questions. Um, Okay, Luke 7, uh, 1 through 10. This is right after uh, Jesus uh, gives the sermon on the plain. And we read, um, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick. And at the point of death, who was highly valued by him, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Um, I, I chose a, a narrative passage in part because it's a little more difficult to do this with than just looking at you know one of Paul's statements in his letters. But I, I also think it um, it helps us do a little We have to think harder, and so this can be helpful. So first, let's let's think: what aspects of the human condition does this passage reveal? And and think back. You can look back to um, the handout where it talks about fallen condition, finite, fragile, faltering. Um, What do we see here? What do we see? I'll just walk us through this. Uh, What do we see about the fallen condition of humanity? Is there there may or may not be. Each of these categories may or may not be here. Okay, there's sickness, which is probably more like fragile condition, because um, not you know somebody gets a cold, it's not necessarily because they personally sinned, and God visits um, them with, with sickness. But OK, so we see something of the fragile condition, the effects of living in a broken world that um, we, we get sick. Um, and then you can connect that to sin. Ultimately, we die because of because of Adam's sin. Um, there's not a ton. In, there's not a ton that stands out to me in this passage about the the uh, falling condition in the sense of personal sin. Although uh, the Jewish elders here who come to Jesus, they they're kind of relating to Jesus in in like a legalistic mechanistic way. Right? Uh, you should help this guy. Not because he's a, a human being created in the image of God and, and has need, but because he's done so much for us. You know, it's kind of like, well, he's earned it, so so why don't you come and help him because he's given us a bunch of money and built things for us? So there, there is that, but it's not necessarily front and center in this passage. Um, what about finite um, human condition, creaturely limitations? Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, the, the centurion has this servant that he he values, and um, I didn't spend enough time looking into it to see is is the servant valuable in the sense of like he he's uh, monetarily valuable or does the centurion care about him? But either way, he can't heal his servant, right? The sick servant, he's he does not have the power to do that. And you know, we can immediately make connections to ourselves, right? There are people in our lives we love and care about, and they may be hurting, they may be physically sick, they may be hurting in other ways, and, and we wish we could just, like, push a button and make it all better, right? But we can't. So we, we butt up against some of the, our finite condition, at least. Wait for the microphone. It's coming. just the, the irony that the centurion has all this power that he can tell people what to do, but he can 't help someone that he really values yeah, yeah. so there 's like this deep irony there yeah that 's a good that 's a good insight, and because he he specifically calls that out right i 'm a man under authority, I can tell people uh, Elizabeth or Kevin, and then elizabeth
0: uh, that the centurion feels unworthy mm, to
1: ask Jesus to do this directly yeah yeah that 's pretty significant, given especially Jesus says you know this guy has faith, and I've not even seen this kind of faith in, in Israel. He's a centurion's an outsider, a, a Roman. Elizabeth. Okay, that he feels unworthy. Um, what about, uh, we, we mentioned, you know, fragile condition. Obviously, sickness stands out here. Um, what else about the, the fragile human condition, the effects of living in a broken world? Um, I would say, and this is related to the sickness, you know, grief, worry, um, uh, uncertainty because of, you know, in this case, I, I don't know if the centurion was emotionally moved by this man's sickness, but, um, you know, we, we have loved ones we care about, they're sick, they're hurting, whatever. It causes us, you know, inner turmoil. It causes us um, all kinds of, of problems because, again, we can't fix it just with a push of a button. Um, what about faltering, the the faltering aspect of the human condition, wavering between belief, unbelief, obedience, disobedience? Maybe not super um, prominent in this passage, but um, you know the fact that Jesus highlights this man's faith here in in a difficult situation would would make me, remind me make me think of you know sometimes. Faith, my faith, um, kind of wobbles <laughs> in difficult circumstances. Wavers. Um, it, it can be ho- sometimes difficult to hold on to that that confident trust in God's care and provision when somebody you love is is on on their deathbed or, or whatever it might be. So, um, anything else about the human condition that stands out to you here in this passage that would be worthwhile? For, for meditating on. All right, let's move on to redemptive solution. So remember I said we don't want to just dwell on the human condition, as important as that is. We also want to see, well, what is God's solution for this? And so nearly every passage in the Bible, um, I should say every passage in the Bible, speaks to God's solution to the human condition. If you can't find it, it's maybe because you're looking at too small of a section or something. Um, but, how does God and Christ and the Gospel provide a redemptive solution to this condition so let 's just start with those five p 's um, that that I had listed for you. Um, any promises here not not really right there nothing explicit. Um, but I would say we do. Um, you have the centurion um, basically calling on Jesus to come to his aid, and we do know God's promise to answer us when we pray to him, when we call to him in our times of need, just like Jesus responded to the centurion's request. Um, what about provision? What, what aspects of God's provision for the human condition do we, do we see here? What happens to the sick servant? He gets healed, right? I mean, and and you know some of the other gospel accounts of healings have Jesus actually there and saying something or touching the person. Here we don't have any of that. He just um, uh, Jesus basically just speaks the word and um, and he's healed. But we see God, uh, Jesus heals a sick person. Um, So there's there's provision for the sick man. He's relieved of his sickness. There's uh, relief provides relief to the centurion, um, maybe emotional relief maybe financial relief from financial worry um, you know we 're reminded that, that God provides for his people right um, It may often is not physical healing it may be sometimes, but but God promises to care for his people. We see you know I, I mentioned. Where do we see Jesus as the sympathy provider? We see compassion here. You know, uh, this man, the centurion, sends a delegation to Jesus and they ask him to come and Jesus says, okay, he just goes. Doesn't even, you know, I've got more important things to do, the guy's not even an Israelite, he goes. Um, What about perspective? Do, Do we see, does God give us perspective in this passage for our life here in this broken, fallen world? I can answer if you want. Stephanie. When your wife raises her hand in class, you've got to call on her. I think just that Jesus hears us. So, I mean, he's not necessarily going to heal and do what we ask every time, but,
0: yeah, he's there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he responded to this this man's need when the man called on him. Kevin. Kevin. Jared's getting his workout this morning. I I think even though we didn't talk about
0: wavering, there's a there's a provision here for the one who's thinking, can Jesus do this? Uh, yeah. They didn't even expect him to do it at a distance, right? And he did, so he kind of showed power beyond what they might have expected. But every time a situation like this comes to them, they have to be wondering, you know, does he have the power to do this too? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's great. Um, it, maybe the provision of Jesus' power. You know, he, he's—I I can't remember. I'd have to go back and look at Luke to see what other healings occurred before this. But you, you're right. They may be thinking he, Jesus has to come to the house and like be there to to help this man, and he does it at a distance. Um, uh, there's nothing. Uh, well, I was gonna say there's nothing necessarily here about God's provision of people, but but you could kind of say there is, right? Actually, this just occurred to me, but I'll, I'll leave it to you. In what ways do we see God's provision of people to to be kind of his instruments of his grace to us? I'll tell you what occurred to me. This, this servant uh, has a master who actually cares about him enough to go search out um, this this man Jesus who's been performing miracles and, and all kinds of things. Um, I don't know that every servant in in Israel in that day had that kind of master. And so, you know, this could cause us to reflect on the fact that God has put people in our lives who, who care about us, who are there for us, who, um, you know, somebody that you could just call at any time of the night and they're going to answer the phone and, and talk with you and not... You know, berate you for waking them up. Um, so God provides people. What about presence? God's. Um, what do we see here? God's gift of presence. If anything, I'm not going to answer this one. So I'm going to make you answer this. Uh, d- despite Jesus uh, not being f- physically present, his spirit was still present to heal the man. Yeah, yeah. And that could be an encouragement to us, right? Like, this is a story about Jesus walking the earth and he could heal, you know, without being physically present. Um, we don't have Jesus in the flesh walking the earth with us today, but he's still powerful enough to heal. Um, also, um, I mean, again, just incarnation. You know, if we're looking at the Gospels, it's just God the Son came to live among us, um, to stand in solidarity with us, to live in a world uh, filled with sickness and death. This isn't the first time Jesus has encountered um, human sickness, human death. Um, He knows what it's like to have friends and loved ones um, get sick and die um, he himself experienced loss and grief and, and so forth. And so we, we see that aspect of, of Jesus' presence as the incarnate Son. Um, quickly, because we're almost out of time here, what about gospel glimpses? Those, those categories there um, penalty payer, covenant keeper, power provider, obedience motivator, and sympathy provider. What, what do you see? What do we see here about um, pen, Jesus as the penalty payer? This one requires a little more uh you gotta know the bigger story here. Um, the servant's brush with death reminds us how where this gospel, where Luke's gospel is going, right? Um, as we move forward in Luke's gospel, we're we're moving toward the cross where Jesus is going to endure death, pay the penalty for our sins. Um and I don't think that's a stretch, you know, as, as the Gospels talk about people dying and Jesus providing healing from sickness and death. Um, it is in the context of Jesus' own death and resurrection. What about um, I'm going to skip over, Covenant Keeper. What about Je- what do we see here about Jesus as power provider? We've kind of already answered this one. Elise. It's coming.
0: Can we jump back to Covenant Keeper? Yeah, yeah. So they're looking at him, as, at the centurion, as though
1: he's the Covenant Keeper. Mm. But Jesus is the real Covenant Keeper who does the right thing for the right reasons. Yeah. And that
0: makes him different and our righteousness.
1: Good, good. That's good. Kevin?
0: I'm not sure what category this goes in, but um they're asking Jesus to reward the Centurion because he has been faithful to um to israel mm-hmm. and he Jesus points out that his response is to the centurion's faith
1: mm. in him, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could probably should say that could be part of the obedient Jesus as obedience motivator, he responds to humble trust, humble faith. Um, definitely. Um, all right, and then um, we've already talked about how do we see Jesus as sympathy provider? That's pretty prominent in this passage. Um, you know, his comp- his compassion is on display. Are you are you raising your hand, Piper, or stretching? Okay, she's stretching. Um, you know, the, the Jewish elders come to Jesus and say, this guy has need, and Jesus just goes. You know, um, compassion, Jesus is drawn to human need. He's drawn to human sinfulness and suffering. Um, uh, it reminds us of Jesus' response to his friend Lazarus, or Lazarus' death, Right? Um, Jesus goes and um, responds, you know, shows compassion for Martha and Mary as they grieve and mourn their brother's death. And so um, you, you can see, you know, as you start to identify how does this passage show us aspects of the human condition, that opens up the, the door for, well, how does God meet those those needs? What, what do we see here about his provision, his redemptive provision and this is the last thing I'll say about this. Um, it can be helpful to kind of again step back and and say what's the big picture here And we're looking at a story in this case of sickness, death, and healing and it reminds us of the bigger story, right that of God's plan, to make all things new through Jesus Christ, which is where Luke's gospel is going. Again, um, Jesus' death, resurrection, new creation, and so um, it can be helpful after you've done this kind of work to just summarize, and you could do it in a sentence, kind of a um, a because then statement. Um, so you've you know you identify some aspect of who Jesus is, what he does, etc. And then, how we ought to respond in light of it. So, it could be because X, then Y. And here's just a simple way that we could summarize this passage. Uh, it's not the only way, but because Jesus is the compassionate and powerful Savior, then I ought to put my full trust in Him. So, it kind of combines the two. You know, we see Jesus, His compassion, His power, and the centurion's response, one of, of humble faith and trust bringing together all of the thoughts and discoveries we've made into a single sentence like that, because Jesus is the compassionate and powerful Savior, then I ought to put my full trust in him. That kind of gives you something to take with you, right? Because it can be hard to keep all those other things in your mind throughout the day. But I could write this one sentence down, I could do whatever, you know, make a note on my phone and, and come back to this throughout the day. So, we are done now with uh, Teach Us Your Word. I hope it's been helpful in um, maybe giving you some tools to benefit from God's Word or, or sharpening some of your skills that you've already um, acquired for reading and studying God's Word. I would encourage you to not just um, go from this class and be like, oh, that was nice, I'm glad we spent a few weeks on that. Like, Do some of these things. Try to put them into practice. Um, we are going to start a new series, I forgot to look at the calendar this morning, I believe we're starting it next Sunday, um, called Finishing Well, and it's going to be, it's based on a book by J.I. Packer, Finishing Our Course with Joy. Um, it's about aging and finishing the Christian life Um um, in the faith, um, finishing, well, finishing the Christian life well. So you might be thinking, well, I'm, I'm in my 20s. I've got, I've got a lot of time in front of me. You still need this class, okay? So um, even though you might think, well, I'm not aging right now, you are. And number two, this will give you some perspective um, for when you get there. So it'll be a good class about, uh, I'm not going to put a time frame on it, um, five to eight weeks, Craig and i haven 't totally nailed down the um, the time frame yet. It depends on what what we find helpful and um, but I, I think it will be a good read or a good class for us just to think about what as christians we 're in this for the long haul, and we want to come to the end of our days. Um, in, in trust, in independence on Jesus Christ. And and so Packer's going to help us um, figure out how to do that. So let me pray, and then you will be dismissed. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the rich um, uh, gift it is to us. We pray that you would help us to um, to be good students of your word and that you would bless us with with just insight and wisdom, and um, that you would transform our hearts and minds and and living as we encounter your word, as we discover the riches of your grace that you hold out to us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, give us a a hunger and a thirst for your word, and would you satisfy that hunger and thirst with the, the rich treasure of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.